Well, good morning, Rockbridge. I know you were touched as all of us here were by that beautiful song. Thank you, praise team, for bringing that. Y'all are amazing. Uh, I just want to take a few minutes. Uh, my name is David McMinn. I'm the pastor here. And I want to take a few minutes to introduce this sermon series. Phil Gore is going to give us the message this morning. He, It's a beautiful message, and you're going to be touched and transformed by it. So we're talking about what happens in life or after life. And to give you encouragement and using evidence from near-death experiences so that we can help you understand and help you see that there is something that we can have a confidence in to look forward to. Now, I do want to remind you, I think this is incredibly important, especially in a time of turmoil, to know that no matter what happens, we are with God and God is on our side. But our confidence, as Josh told us, allows us to live a life now and do the work of bringing heaven on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit through our actions. So without further ado, I introduce Phil Gore sharing the message of the evidence of the afterlife. In my first few months as a senior pastor, at 28 years old, the phone rang early one morning. A family was calling to ask me to conduct a funeral service for their father who had passed away during the night. I knew this was an important moment for them and for me, but Bible college, my pastoral training, uh, a pastoral internship, and several years of full-time ministry had not prepared me for exactly what to do in this moment. So I reach for this little black book in my bookcase entitled Minister's Manual to begin planning a funeral service. The first thing I read there was that when there's a death, the most important thing a minister can do is to go and be with the family. Putting down the book, I called the deceased man's wife and asked, is it okay if I come over to see you? A few days later, after the funeral, we conducted a graveside service and after that, a, a few people were still gathered around, and the funeral director pulled me aside. He said he wanted to tell me something. I'm thinking, oh, no, this is going to be like one of the first weddings I did where I had the bride and the groom on the wrong side. And afterward, the photographer said, uh, why did you do that? Does your church have a different tradition or anything? And nope. This funeral director was attending his last funeral as the owner of the funeral home. He had sold his business and was retiring. He said to me, you know, I've been to hundreds, maybe thousands of funerals. There's something different about a Christian funeral. Don't get me wrong, he said. I I'm not a believer. In fact, I think of myself as an agnostic. But I've noticed that at a Christian funeral, even though people are grieving like they do at any funeral, they have hope that they will see their loved one again. They don't believe this is the end. I've thought of those words often in the years since. He's right. This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John 3.16, the Bible tells us God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. The hope of the believer in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with politics or economics or any of the physical things of this world. The hope of the believer in Jesus is the gift of eternal life with God. 
This message this morning could be entitled Easter Part 2. It is a continuation of the message of Easter last week. On the third day, after Jesus was crucified and pronounced dead and laid to rest in the tomb, early in the morning on the first day of the week, he arose from the grave. That was part one, just the beginning. This morning, we are starting a six-week sermon series on Now What?, What's the rest of the story? What does the death, burial, and maybe most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus mean for us? According to the Apostle Paul, it means that because he lives, we can live also. And not just live more fulfilling and meaningful lives here on earth. Jesus raising from the dead demonstrates that those who believe in him also have his promise of everlasting life. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, if our hope in Christ is good only for this life, we are worse off than anyone else. Join with me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the times that we are going through, that your presence is with us, that you are guiding us, that you are speaking into our lives. We pray, Lord, this morning that your word would be clear and that your will and your purpose in our lives would be revealed to us. And also, very importantly, God, I pray that you would anoint our ears to understand what your Holy Spirit would say to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. This is out of the contemporary English version, and it's very plain spoken, uh, but follow along with me as, as I read. Some of you have asked, how will the dead be raised to life? What kind of bodies will they have? Don't be foolish. A seed must die before it can sprout from the ground. Wheat seeds and all other seeds look different from the sprouts that come up. This is because God gives everything the kind of body he wants it to have. People, animals, birds, and fish are each made from flesh, but none of them are alike. Everything in the heavens has a body, and so does everything on earth. But each one is very different from all of the others. The sun isn't like the moon, the moon isn't like the stars, and each star is different. That's how it will be when our bodies are raised to life. These bodies will die, but the bodies that are raised will live forever. These ugly and weak bodies will become beautiful and strong. As surely as there are physical bodies, there are spiritual bodies, and our physical bodies will be changed into spiritual bodies. The first man was named Adam, and the scriptures tell us that he was a living person. But Jesus, who may be called the last Adam, is a life-giving spirit. We see that the one with a spiritual body did not come first. He came after the one who had a physical body. The first man was made from the dust of the earth, but the second man came from heaven. Everyone on earth has a body like the body of the one who was made from the dust of the earth. And everyone in heaven has a body like the body of the one who came from heaven. Just as we are like the one who was made out of the earth, we will be like the one who came from heaven. My friends, 
I want you to know that our bodies of flesh and blood will decay. This means they cannot share in God's kingdom, which lasts forever. I will explain a mystery to you. Not every one of us will die, but we will all be changed. It will happen suddenly, quicker than the blink of an eye. At the sound of the last trumpet, the dead will be raised. We will all be changed, so we will never die again. Our dead and decaying bodies will be changed into bodies that won't die or decay. The bodies we now have are weak and can die, but they will be changed into bodies that are eternal. Then the scriptures will come true. Death has lost the battle. Where is its victory? Where is its sting? Sin is what gives death its sting, and the law is the power behind sin. But thank God for letting our Lord Jesus Christ give us the victory. My dear friends, stand firm and don't be shaken. Always keep busy working for the Lord. You know that everything you do for him is worthwhile. There is a lot in this passage of Scripture, and we don't have time to unpack it all. I want to draw your attention to three specific facts from this passage that we can support with lots of other Scripture. First, this natural, physical life is not the end. God created our soul, our essence, to live forever and desires for us to live eternally with him. Second, our current physical bodies will come to an end. They serve a purpose for the span of time we are here on earth, but our corruptible, decaying flesh is not what lives forever. The third and most important fact is that for those who believe in Jesus, passing from this life is simply a new beginning, a magnificent and wonderful new beginning with new bodies in a place called heaven that Christ has prepared for those that love him. What evidence do we have that any of this is true? What is the evidence of an afterlife? Let's consider some firsthand reports from people who have claimed to die or come very close to it and come back to life. What evidence do we have of an afterlife? Everybody wonders, what happens when we die? Is heaven real? It's a big topic in our culture. Modern songs, books, and movies show a lot of curiosity in the afterlife, near-death experiences, and heaven. Yet even though we're curious, we're also in denial. We don't want to think about death, even though there's a great likelihood it will happen. People used to often say there are only two guarantees in life, death and taxes. But that's not really true, is it? If you are smart enough and wealthy enough, as Warren Buffett assures us, you can figure out how to get out of paying taxes. But no one has ever been rich enough or smart enough to figure out how to get out of dying. I read a story recently about four guys who were playing poker one night. Someone said, what do you want people to say at your funeral? One answered, I want them to say I was a brilliant doctor who saved many lives. Another said, I want them to say I was a devoted, loving father to my kids. The last guy said, I want them to say, look, he's moving. Believe it or not, more and more people are saying, look, he's moving. 
Gallup polls and other studies estimate that 13 million Americans, that's actually one in 25, have had a near-death experience where there was no heartbeat, no brain waves, and yet somehow they came back to life. What these people say they experienced on the other side is hard to believe. For believers in what Jesus taught, though, we know that real life, life after death, what we know as death is far more exhilarating than anything we can imagine here on earth. John Burke, who wrote this little book that I have in my hands, he is a a local pastor here in Austin, and he wrote a book entitled Imagine Heaven. He talks about how 35 years ago, when his dad was dying of cancer, he picked up a book someone else had given him called Life After Death. That was the book that coined the term near-death experience. John read it cover to cover that first night. At the time, he didn't really believe in God, Jesus, or an afterlife. John writes, he only believed in the next party. But with death knocking on his family's door, he read it and was blown away. That night, he decided, whoa, maybe God is real. I've got to find out. His next year at UT, he started studying the scriptures with a small group of people and found faith. While studying engineering, he began also studying reasons to believe and found incredible historical evidence that God really has been revealing himself. Eventually, he left a career in engineering to start a church to reach skeptics and doubters like himself and explore faith. After studying near-death experiences, John concluded that they reveal what scriptures already say, and in a way that helps us imagine how amazing heaven is going to be. We could be and should be skeptical of any one story. We know ourselves well enough to know that sometimes people say some really bizarre things. It would be reckless to form a a view of the afterlife based on just one story or two. However, when you look at the common elements across thousands of stories from all around the world, you see how they line up with Scripture. It's quite compelling. These accounts tend to have some very common elements. Now, imagine for a second you're at that point in your life that many people fear most. You breathe your last breath. After near-death experiences or NDEs, people commonly report that, to their surprise, they experience leaving their body, but typically remain in the vicinity looking down on their lifeless body. They're out of body in some new body in some form. To their surprise, they usually can't tell that they're dead, but they feel more alive than ever before. What they thought would be scary is actually invigorating. And this is fascinating. When you look at how they've described this to skeptical cardiologists and oncologists and other doctors who revive them, this has begun to convince many skeptical medical providers that there is an afterlife. Cardiologist Michael Sabam describes, before talking with Pete and scores like him, I didn't believe that there was such a thing as a near-death experience. Pete told me he had left his body during his first cardiac arrest and had watched the resuscitation. 
When I asked him to tell me what he saw, he described the resuscitation with such detail and accuracy that I could have later used the recording to teach new physicians. Sabam said people like Pete Morton saw details of their resuscitation that they could not have seen if they were not out of their body and looking down from above. Dr. Sabam studied NDEs to refute them, but after five years of research, he published his findings in a book called Recollections of Death. He also published his findings in the journal of the American Medical Association. A radiologist oncologist, Dr. Long, read those findings in the journal of the AMA, and he found it hard to believe until one night at dinner with friends, a lady named Sheila mentioned a food allergy that once made her code. Her heart stopped. Dr. Long decided to probe. Did anything happen to you when you coded? Hesitantly, Sheila said, yes, I found myself at ceiling level. I could see the EKG machine I was hooked to. The EKG was flatlined. The doctors and nurses were frantically trying to bring me back to life. The scene below me was a near panic situation. In contrast to the chaos below, I felt a profound sense of peace. I was completely free of any pain. My consciousness drifted out of the operating room and moved into a nursing station. I immediately recognized that this was the nursing station on the floor where I had been prior to my surgery. After I watched the nurses for a while, a tunnel opened up. I was drawn to the tunnel. I then passed through the tunnel and became aware of a bright light at the end. I felt peaceful. After I passed through the tunnel, I found myself in an area of beautiful, mystical light. And in front of me were several beloved relatives whom had previously died. It was a joyous reunion, and we embraced. I found myself with a mystical being of overwhelming love and compassion. I was in a realm of overwhelming love. In this realm, I knew I was truly home. Finally, I returned to my body. I awoke in ICU over a day later. I had tubes and wires all over me. I could not talk about my experience. Since that dinner, Dr. Long has collected and scientifically studied thousands of accounts from around the world. He concludes by studying thousands of detailed accounts of NDEers, I found evidence that led to this astonishing conclusion. NDEs provide such powerful scientific evidence it is reasonable to accept the existence of an afterlife. The Lancet, one of the most prestigious medical journals, published another account of a patient going into cardiac arrest and not breathing. It said at the time that a tube was being placed in the airway to ventilate, his dentures were removed and placed in a cart droid, while the patient was deeply comatose. Over a week later, the patient reported an out-of-body experience and accurately described the room he was resuscitated in and the people that were present. Remarkably, he declared that his lost dentures could be found in the cart drawer. Why is this important? What happens when we die? I can admit that 
none of us who haven't had this kind of experience would have grounds to say, this is exactly what would happen. This is the way it would be. But all these various testimonials, again, point to very similar depictions that are borne out in Scripture. What do we know? When we die, we leave this body behind. But you are still you in a new spiritual body. Science tells us that each skin cell in our body dies and gets replaced every 27 days. You are not in the same physical body that you were in a month ago. That's hard to believe. But this suggests that whatever you are is not just physical. This is what the Bible has told us for thousands of years. The Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish Pharisee, was killing Christians for claiming Jesus was Messiah. Until on the Damascus road, he encountered a man of blinding light, just like many near-death experience people report. Paul realized Jesus was who he claimed to be. Paul still had to decide if he would follow Jesus, which is also true of people with a near-death experience. They still have a choice But Paul went on to start churches across the Roman Empire. And in Acts 14, it appears that Paul may have had another near-death experience when he was stoned to death. In Acts 14, verses 19 through 20 read, They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town, thinking he was dead. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back to town. Later, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. Paul also explained that when we die, we get new bodies. In this passage we just read, he wrote, These ugly and weak bodies will become beautiful and strong. As surely as there are physical bodies, there are spiritual bodies. And our physical bodies will be changed into spiritual bodies. Whether we are buried, cremated, or something else, these physical bodies stay behind. The bodies are done. But people who have near-death experiences consistently say they felt more alive than ever. So what is heaven like? When many of us imagine heaven, I'm concerned that we imagine something less real, less tangible, maybe a bit superficial or even boring. Much of our conceptions in the church, the the churches I grew up in, uh, come from Depression-era hymns, which could also be called Depressing-era hymns. They, They come more from that, perhaps, than Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. These hymns have some elements that are drawn from passages in the Bible, but mansions and gold pavement might have been a lot more appealing in 1933 than they are today. Then there are the Renaissance versions of heaven that seem to have a a lot of naked babies with um, bows and arrows and harps and clouds. I never could figure what was up with that. Uh, They seemed boring at best and maybe just a little bit weird. There was a a far side cartoon with with two guys in heaven. They were sitting on the edge of a cloud whistling. One guy says, I wish I'd brought a magazine. I 
I've heard people imagine an endless church service. No offense to Pastor David or the worship team, but that sounds super boring to me. None of these conceptions serve us well. I want you to think for a moment. What do you imagine when you think about heaven? Knowing that some older depictions of heaven probably don't serve most people well, at least people under 65, I started asking the last couple of weeks some people what their images of heaven are. A lady in her 30s said, joy, laughter, peace, everyone you love, all in one place for eternity, the best family reunion you can imagine, and Jesus is there connecting us all. I think heaven is understanding and wisdom beyond anything we could imagine on earth. I think it will just all make sense. I also imagine a deep sense of belonging, unlike any of us have experienced before. Everyone has a place and is included. And of course, my musings, the streets of gold, well, they're actually dirt roads and the mansions are country cabins with wraparound porches, porches and mason jars of sweet tea. She might have been Texan. A man in his 40s told me, oh man, that question literally made me tear up. For me, I don't have an image per se. It's, it's more of a feeling. Heaven for me is being pain-free emotionally, being able to see friends and family I lost when they or I was young. I don't picture it as anything visually because I, I don't believe whatever I can think of will be anywhere close to what it really is. I do believe all of the emotional baggage from my childhood up till now will be released. If I'm forced to give a physical description, I would... It would be beautiful, tall mountains with the fresh smell of an alpine field and lakes and streams like Jackson Hole, Wyoming or Yellowstone National Park. But honestly, when I picture heaven, it's more of a feeling of the release from everyday worry, anger, angst, etc., all gone. And I'd be the best version of myself physically and mentally. I'll see my high school friends and family members and have access to anyone I wanted, anyone I wanted to shake hands with, like Ernest Hemingway or John Lennon. A 40-year-old woman here in Cedar Park told me, I see heaven as bright white and gold. I feel light. I'm singing and dancing, hugging my grandma. My heart could burst with so much love. And there is calm peace. These were all typical responses. People younger than me picture as heaven. They describe it more as a feeling of peace, joy, love, complete release and abandonment of worry, anger, fear, and concern. Younger adults also describe heaven as a place of light, both spiritually and physically. Interestingly, these are attributes the Bible ascribes to God and the heaven he prepared for those who love him. Many people ask, well, what are relationships like in heaven? Will we be known and will other people know who we are? 
God created us as relational beings to have relationships that last and go to new depths in heaven. He created us, first of all, for relationship with him. It's amazing how people around the globe, young and old, from all different cultures and religious backgrounds, consistently describe this being of light whom they know to be God. Those who follow Jesus know it's him. Some don't know who he is, but Jesus is still who they describe. A psychiatrist at the University of Virginia, Dr. George Ritchie, died of pneumonia. He has the death certificate to prove it. He didn't realize he was dead as he was looking down at his body. Then a light came into the room. He said, it was impossibly bright. It was like a million welder's lamps all at once. I thought, I'm glad I don't have physical eyes at this moment. This light would destroy my retina in a tenth of a second. No, I I corrected myself. Not the light. He would be too bright to look at. For now I saw that it was not light, but, but a man, a person who had entered the room, or rather a man made out of light. He knew that this was Jesus whom he had heard about in Sunday school and thought of as a gentle, meek, and kind of weakling. But he said this person was power itself, fused together with an unconditional love that overwhelmed me, an astonishing love, a love beyond my wildest imagination. This love knew everything unlovable about me. The quarrels with my stepmother, my explosive temper, the sexual thoughts I could never control, every mean selfish thought and action since the day I was born, and he accepted and loved me just the same. When I say he knew everything about me, this was simply an observable fact. For Into that room, along with his radiant presence, simultaneously came every single episode of my life. Everything that had ever happened to me was simply there, in full view, all seemingly taking place at the same moment. How this was possible, I don't know, but I I stared at myself standing at the blackboard in third grade. Later in high school, receiving my Eagle badge, wheeling Papa Dabney onto the veranda, Hundreds, thousands of scenes all illuminated by that searing light in an existence where time seemed to have ceased. What's amazing is how consistent this is. This life review in the presence of this man of light who is unconditional love, yet who knows everything, every thought, every motive, every deed. Across the globe, thousands of people report this life review with this being of light who is love. And this is exactly what we should expect. God is love, wrote the Apostle John. Jesus demonstrated the love of God for all humanity to enter our suffering and pay for our wrongs. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 26, don't be afraid of anyone. Everything that is hidden will be found out And every secret will be made known. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 tells us, So don't judge anyone until the Lord returns. He will show what is hidden in the dark and what is in everyone's heart. Then God will be the one who praises each of us. We will look more at what this life review means in weeks to come. But one thing to note now, 
God wants to reward us. His plans for us in heaven is to be a time of celebration and reward for a life lived in loving faithfulness to him and to our fellow man. He has us here on earth for a purpose. By the way, now this is very important. In all this talk about how wonderful heaven is, don't ever think suicide is God's will for you. You are here for a purpose, and it's not too late for any of us. So why all this talk about heaven? We have a lot of problems happening in our world right now. I have my mask and my gloves here with me with just a small group of people in the auditorium. There's a lot going on. Why should we focus our attention on heaven in a time like this? When I was young, sometimes I would hear someone in the church say that so-and-so was so heavenly-minded, they were of no earthly good. Is that even possible? I mean, I'm not talking about a space cadet that just checked out into la-la land. But the Apostle Paul, for example, he seemed to be very heavenly-minded. And he's responsible for writing about half the books in our New Testament. Was was there ever a person more heavenly-minded than Jesus himself? Over the next few weeks, we will find why a focus on heaven is so important. God is the God of compassion, mercy, and grace. He is the God of a second chance, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a 490th. Jesus told his disciples, while he hated to leave them, it was necessary for him to leave to go and prepare a place for them. No one loves you more. His thoughts toward us are to provide for us. You're likely familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says to his people, I will bless you with a future filled with hope. A future of success, not suffering. After the bridge service on Wednesday night, I, I watched the feature film, I Can Only Imagine. The movie tells the story of Bart Millard, a man who grew up in Greenville, Texas, which is northeast of Dallas, and was frequently abused by his father. Struggling to find his way in the music business, in the movie, Amy Grant, his producers, and others like Michael W. Smith encourage him to find his own story, to write his own song, the unique story of his heart. Unbeknownst to Bart, his father had come to know Christ through listening to Bart's music on the radio and almost accidentally hearing the good news of redemption and forgiveness found in Jesus. Understandably, Bart had a hard time accepting his father's request for forgiveness and accepting his father had come to know Christ. Not long after his father died from pancreatic cancer, Bart penned in just 10 minutes 
the words to one of the most popular songs of our generation, and not just popular in traditional gospel music venues, but all over the world, I can only imagine. After Pastor David comes and leads us in communion this morning, join us in your home imagining what heaven means to you.